Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, through the power of your word, you would have your way with us this morning. That you would expose sin in our lives. That you would expose sin in us corporately as a church body. That you might be glorified. That people in this neighborhood would come to know you as Lord and ruling and reigning king. We love you, Jesus. We want to hear from you now. I ask that by your spirit you would speak to us through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Truly believing in the resurrection must must truly change how we live. That's the idea this morning. Truly believing in the resurrection must truly change how we live. For the past six weeks, if you've been following with us, we've been seeing Paul unpack the truthfulness and the meaning of the resurrection. And it's been glorious. Uh, Next Sunday, he'll begin to answer some questions like, okay, so when's this going to happen? And and what will our bodies be like? But but before we move on to those questions, Paul reveals this morning what's been driving him all along. This morning, he'll say, truly believing in the resurrection of Jesus must truly change how we live. So let me put a finer point on our past six weeks together. If all we get out of 1 Corinthians 15 is sort of disconnected doctrine, stuff that doesn't touch our lives, then we've missed the point. We've missed the point. We find ourselves, in fact, as we see this morning, not having understood or knowing God at all. Truly believing in the resurrection of Jesus must truly change how we live. Three really simple points to guide our time this morning, okay? Worthless religion, worthless companions, and worthwhile living. Worthless religion, worthless companions, worthwhile living. If you have your Bibles, verse 29, let's look there together. If you don't have a Bible, Hugo's at the back. He can give you a Bible. Take it, keep it. It's our gift to you, okay? Bible's open, verse 29. Look with me. I'm going to read all the way to verse 32. 
Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The, the, the other wise in our text, did you see that that began verse 29? It, it forces us to recall the entirety of Paul's argument up until this point. So let me just briefly recap six weeks of Paul's argument for you. Ready? Verse 1 to 11, Paul gives a narrative account of all that's occurred. He said, this is the gospel of first importance. Remember, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised on the third day, all in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul showed us, not only is this true of of all who are in Christ, it's true of me. I, the, the least likely, the least of the apostles too, have experienced and encountered God's grace. That was verses 1 to 11, this narrative of God's story being swept up into that. To verse 12, we come to the problem. See, there are some in Corinth who are denying the resurrection, who are saying, I I follow Jesus, but somehow I can follow Jesus outside of affirming his his literal bodily resurrection. And so they're denying the resurrection. And then in verses 13 to 19, Paul took us on a bit of a a logical journey. He said, okay, if the dead are not raised, then Jesus is not alive. And if Jesus is not alive and the dead are not raised, th- th- then you have hope in this life only. Remember verse 19. And of, of all people, most to be pitied, most to be thought ill of, most to be sort of condescendingly looked look down upon. But then we come to verse 20. And, and verse 20 is one of those moments, particularly in Paul's writing, where it has like this, but this, but this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And it was glorious. It was good. See, this truth, Corinth must stake their life upon it. In his resurrection, we find not only Adam's sin being undone, remember we're in Adam, but the resurrection also means, and we saw this last week, that, that Christ's ruling and reigning life begins now. And we right now can participate in that. We right now have eternal life. That's where we've been. And if it feels like your head's about to explode, I sympathize. That's why we talked about it over six weeks. The otherwise, though, of our text today is a hearkening back to verse 12. Now, if some are indeed saying there is no resurrection of the dead, otherwise means... If it is indeed true that Christ is still in the tomb. And the first thing Paul will tell us is that if Christ is still in the tomb, if he's still dead, you are guilty of practicing, and this is point one, a worthless religion. A worthless religion. Look at verse 29 with me. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, Why are people baptized on their behalf? And we all say, of course, Paul, we know what you're talking about. Let me begin by saying, we don't actually know what spiritual practice Paul is talking about here. We don't actually know. In fact, it would have saved me a lot of reading this week if the commentators just put like a shrug emoji beside like verse 29. I don't know. 
Now, that being said, scholars have suggested a few things. I'm going to run you through those options just so you know what it could be. Some are saying this. On on one hand, you have some who believe Paul is just in passing referring to some strange baptism practices that might have involved baptizing dead people. So dead people. Or people being baptized on behalf of dead people, which, by the way, is what happens today in the Mormon church. Or baptizing almost dead people. Okay? On the other hand, you have some scholars who think that Paul is referring to a situation where people are being baptized in response to the passing of their family members. So think about it. Your mom or dad, let's say, who loves Jesus, dies. And you don't know Jesus. And you think to yourself, man, I want to spend eternity with my mom or my dad. I want to trust in Jesus. I want to get baptized. That could be what Paul's talking about here. Being baptized in order to spend eternity with those that we love. In order to spend time with both Jesus and our deceased family members. We don't know. But whatever is happening in first century Corinth, the point remains the same. Okay? If you don't believe in the resurrection then why are you even bothering with baptism? Why are you even thinking about this religious rite? Why are you even practicing something if you don't believe in the resurrection? See, baptism, we know, Daniel talked about this morning, is the sign of our entrance into God's covenant community. It's not for those who've arrived. It's not for the spiritually mature or the spiritually elite. It's an entrance into God's covenant people. Let me just double down on what Daniel said. If you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus and you're comfortable taking communion, you should be baptized. You should be baptized. But baptism, if you know how it works, you go under the water, right? You're you're tracking with me so far. You go under the water. You don't just stay there. We don't just like hold you down. We don't do that. You, You come up out of the water, right? And in coming up out of the water, it's a sign. Not only have you died with Christ, but you're experiencing now in Christ his new resurrection life. And that doesn't make sense if you don't believe in the resurrection. If you don't believe that Jesus is coming back to to renew his people and renew all creation. He continues though. He says, not only are your religious rites and ceremonies worthless if there is no resurrection, but also... So is my persecution. So is my other's centeredness. So is all that I've endured. Look at verse 30. Why, he says, if there is no resurrection, are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And what do I gain if, if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul's life, the life of the apostles, in fact, I should say, the life of most Christians throughout the ages has been marked by suffering and persecution. Horrendous suffering. Horrendous persecution. If you remember a few weeks back, Daniel walked us through Paul's suffering. That visceral, terrible Horrible suffering for the sake of the gospel. So Paul Gardner, he's a commentator. He paraphrases Paul's rhetoric here. He says this. Paul's just basically saying, every hour of every day, we are in danger to the point of death. And to what end if the dead are not raised? 
Why would we do this if the dead are not raised? Verse 31 is just Paul making an oath. He's swearing by his greatest joy, which are these Corinthian believers themselves, which Christ has given him. So what suffering did Paul endure? Again, we know from the rest of Paul's letters and from the book of Acts that he suffered much and in many different ways. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, it says that Paul at one point was even despairing of life itself. But the trial that he cites in our text this morning is fighting with beasts at Ephesus. Do you see that? Fighting with beasts at Ephesus. So for the first century reader, they hear fighting with beasts at Ephesus and immediately it evokes in them a reminder of the Roman arena, right? Where, where Christians and other condemned people would go and they would literally face terrible, horrific, literal animals. You know, you've seen Gladiator, I assume. We've all seen Gladiator, right? Not, this is the best movie I've ever seen. I mean, that's a bit hyperbolic. It's not the best. I got caught up there. You've seen Gladiator. You know what happens, right? People go into the arena, and unless you're Russell Crowe, you die, right? You die. The beasts eat you. They always win. The survival rate of the arena was 0.000001%, okay? You always die in the arena. Now, that being said, the arena was reserved for those who were not Roman citizens. And so we know Paul was a Roman citizen. And there's no mention of Paul ever losing his Roman citizenship. Further, if, if you know this, Paul's actually alive when he wrote this. So, so surely Paul did not go to the arena, which is why I think we should read the beasts that Paul talks about here, not as literal animals, but, but metaphorically. These metaphorical beasts that Paul is wrestling with. See, the beasts to which Paul refers are not lions, but liars, <laughs> Uh, the, the beasts to which Paul refers are not real animals, but, but like riotous crowds, like the kind he refers to in Acts 19 that tried to kill him and stone him and murder him. Of course, more broadly in biblical literature, beasts also refer uh, to pagan empires opposed to Christ, opposed to God. So we think about it in Daniel, the beasts there, or in Revelation, the beasts pictured in that literature. So where does this leave us? In short, it's this, if Jesus is not alive, then you have no hope for resurrection and your, your silly little uh, water dunking is nothing more than a bad bath and you shouldn't go down to Kitts Beach when it's cold out because that'd be just worthless. And, and the countless suffering that we endure against people and an entire forces opposed to God is also pointless. All of this leading Paul to say concerning our lives not only are we a, a, a pitiable people, a pitiful people, but practically, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, verse 32, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This quotation, again, is one that would have been popular in Paul's day. People would have known this, would have been sort of thrown out. It's sort of like the first century version of YOLO. That's what this is, Okay. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's also surprisingly a phrase we find Isaiah using ironically in Isaiah 22. I want to just take us there for a second. Imagine the scene with me. Visualize it. Israel, at this point in their history, is hemmed in by the Assyrian army. 
there's mass suffering taking place, the result actually of Israel's sin. And while the Lord demanded repentance and contrite hearts from his people, Isaiah looked around at all the suffering. And what did he see in Israel at the time? Isaiah 22, verse 13. And behold, Isaiah saw joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's a self-indulgent pursuit of the good life. That's what Israel was guilty of. Which, by the way, isn't always so easy to spot. See, Paul's not only quoting Isaiah 22 in our passage today. Like I said, this slogan was popular in Paul's day. It had traveled the 700 years to Paul's day. And in fact, it was most popular or made popular by the Epicurean school of philosophy. The Epicurean school. And the Epicureans often get a bad rap as these sort of unbridled hedonists, right? Who just do whatever they want. But I want to read to you a quote describing the sort of Epicurean philosophy. And I want you to listen to hear if this sounds familiar to you. Okay? This is from Craig Blomberg. He's a scholar. He writes this. The Epicureans of old did not usually interpret their slogan as a call to sheer gluttony and drunkenness. Listen. Rather, they sought the good life, cultivating the arts of fine dining, music and theater, and treasured friendships. Yet ultimately, all of this was self-centered since they did not look to continuing any pleasures beyond the grave. Self-interest may even lead to humanitarian and altruistic concerns, but ultimately, it produces nothing permanently satisfying if this life is all that exists. I wonder if there's not a little Epicureanism in the church. Friends, if Jesus is not alive, then we have no hope. Then we should stop playing church. You should stop weathering the snow to gather on Sunday morning. We should stop playing righteous. We should close these doors, and in its place, we should turn this into a temple of gastronomy, allow an orchestra to practice here, or a society for mutual respect. If we don't truly believe in the resurrection, we should not truly change how we live. I want that to sink in for us. That that Paul has a category of people who have sacrificed everything, who are religiously observant, who care about other people, who even claim to be followers of Jesus, who have wasted their lives. all because they deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we do not believe in the resurrection, we should not truly change how we live. All our religious fervor, even our suffering, our other's centeredness is worthless. Now what happens next in our text might surprise us. It surprised me at least. All that we've heard so far makes sense in view of the argument Paul's been making about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. But then in verse 33, I don't know if you noticed this, it seems as if Paul gets distracted. It seems as if he goes off course. Like, like how, how is this related? Look at this with me. He writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So remember, Paul's writing to a church. He's writing, yes, as an apostolic figure. 
yes, as a theologian, but he's also writing as a pastor. And as a pastor, he's interested in answering the question, how did we get here? How did this happen? If you read Acts 18, verse 8, you see that Corinth was a church planted in power. Like people came to know Jesus powerfully in Corinth. People from the synagogue, people, Gentile people, all came to know Jesus in power. And yet somehow, somewhere along the way, there are some amongst them who are now denying the resurrection. So Paul's asking, how did this happen? How did this happen? How, how does a, a thriving church plant come to the brink of, of heresy? And the answer is slowly. One by one. Person by person. Employing a phrase he's already used in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says what? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. See the truth. Be wise. Bad company ruins good morals. Translation, you've been hanging out with people who say they are following Jesus, but their lives of sin are rubbing off on you. They claim to be spiritual, but they're not, and they are taking you down with them. Bad company ruins good morals. They are, and this is point number two, worthless companions. Worthless companions. So let's talk about this. I think many Christians in this room especially would acknowledge, generally speaking, the truth of the point that surrounding yourself with ungodly people all the time is generally bad for your walk with Jesus. But what I want to do is take this general belief and make it very specific to this context. Unpack it for us. Because the first question I'm asking, I think you're asking is, does this mean, Jake, that I should get rid of all my friends and family members who don't love Jesus? And the answer is no. I hope you've been here long enough to know that the answer is no. That the Lord has you there on purpose, for a reason. In fact, we could probably used to hang out with more people who don't know Jesus. The answer is no. But Paul, if you remember, actually addressed a, a relevant topic to this in chapter 5. And so I want to go to chapter 5 with you, where he deals with this. In chapter 5, which I'm sure you remember, the question was, Paul, how should we relate to someone in the church who is actively engaging in unrepentant sexual immorality? And in short, again, listen to that sermon if you want to know what that answer is. But, but in short, the answer was, you should remove them from your midst. That's what Paul says. But he anticipates the, the Corinthian pushback in that chapter, which would have sounded something like this. Listen, Paul, if we just start removing people who are sexually immoral from our lives, we're going to soon find we live in northern BC in a hut, like by ourselves, just like kind of covering under our blankets, right? Like, like how do we do this, Paul? Our world is, is, is rife with all these kinds of things. How do we do this? L look at uh, verses 9 to 11. Paul wrote this. I wrote to you in my letter, that's the letter before this, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he says this, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. We think of Jesus' own ministry, the people he surrounded himself with. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty. Look, bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul's concern here is not primarily what our friends and family who don't know Jesus are doing, rather what our so-called Christian friends are doing. It's the ungodly behaviors and beliefs that we are subtly picking up on from the people who are supposed to be encouraging us, supposed to be challenging us, supposed to be spurring us on in our walk with Jesus. That's Paul's concern. But, but people are, are not the only worthless companions we keep, right? People are not the only worthless companions we keep. The shows we indulge in, the comedians we laugh at, the, the music we work out to, the bars and restaurants we frequent, all have a way of forming and shaping us, molding us, either exciting our heart for Jesus and for his gospel or numbing us to his touch. Friends, some of us this morning have worthless companions. And these might be so-called Christian friends who are poisoning your faith. And while you remain with the hope of winning them with good teaching and right doctrine, the truth is, is that they are far more influential on you than you are on them. You need to see that. I'm not telling you to jettison your unbelieving or struggling friends. I'm saying that you might be letting your guard down with a person who's not safe. And some of us have worthless companions that are not people, but television shows. The things we stream. Shows that portray as normal what scripture calls sin. Shows that make us dissatisfied with the bodies or affections of our spouse. Shows that fill our hearts with covetousness and envy with the house or the career that we don't have. Again, I'm not saying every podcast you listen to or every show you watch has to be quote-unquote Christian, whatever that means. I'm calling us first to wisdom, but I think more importantly, I'm calling us to humility. I want to explain this. See, according to ourselves... We are the most unimpressionable people to have ever existed in the world. According to ourselves, we are unfazed by what we watch, by what we consume, and where we find ourselves. See, we have viewing parties where we watch shows that contain softcore pornography, and we pretend, pretend to care about character development, or the narrative arc, or redemptive themes, and that's garbage. Smart words we use to justify our actions. I'm pleading with us, Christ City. When it comes to the company we keep, we need to show some humility. I want to take us to 1 Kings chapter 4. And you're like, why? 1 Kings chapter 4, where we meet Solomon. And Solomon, we are told, well, I'll just read it to you. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Esrahite, and Heman, and Kalkul, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. 
He also spoke of three, he also spoke 3,000 Proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedars in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And he spoke, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Before Jesus, Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived. Smartest man who ever lived. And it wasn't just like theology and politics and like that kind of stuff. It was like ornithology and zoology and botany before those were even names for things. He was good at that before that was a thing. Okay, PhD in all of those. And yet Solomon, we're told, Solomon, we're told, was corrupted by his pagan, idol-worshipping wives that he surrounded himself with. Bad company ruins good morals. So I just want to ask, are you more wiser than Solomon? Are you more wise than he? Are you more unimpressionable than Solomon? Be warned. Worthless company leads to worthless religion. The things that we surround ourselves with impact us, influence us. And still there's a better way. Last point. Worthwhile living. Again, in in many ways, verse 33 is what 1 Corinthians 15 thus far has been driving to. So what? So what? If Jesus is alive and we're going to be made alive with him, so what? Look at verse uh, 34. Paul says this, and I want us to hear this. I want us to hear it as the word of God for us this morning. Paul says, Corinth, Christ City, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul says, in essence, sober up. Sober up. Sober up. And for any of us who have struggled with addiction, we know that it is easier said than done. See, to sober up is to face reality. To face the reality of what you've done to yourself. To face the reality of what you've done to others. And to face the reality of what's been done to you. For us to sober up, for us to not go on sinning, requires a belief that the reality we will encounter, though hard and painful and difficult, is better than this drunken stupor we think protects us, numbs us, keeps us from facing and enduring reality. And so like a bucket of ice water over your head this morning, Christ City, hear reality for a moment. Ready? Jesus is risen. Like he's truly alive. He's, he's truly alive, which means if Jesus is risen, your sins have been paid for full stop. Completely, totally, full stop. And Jesus is risen, he says. And if Jesus is risen, it means that you're no longer a walking corpse in Adam, but you are now in Christ. You become a new creation, Paul says, and you can live out this new creation identity. Jesus is risen. And if Jesus is risen, you can now have the Spirit of God living in you, empowering you to live differently, to stop sinning. Paul does not say, stop sinning, and then say, well, 
you know, you're going to do it anyways. You know, you're going to, no, he's envisioning us growing in holiness, growing in our sanctification. Listen, we will sin until the day Jesus returns. But that does not mean we do not grow or progress in our holiness, Christ City. Jesus is risen. Wake up. And if Jesus is risen, you can stare down this morning the barrel of all that you've done and all that's been done against you, knowing that in Jesus, your forgiveness, your worth, your eternal life is secure. Paul says, in view of the reality that Jesus is alive, what room remains for us to continue in sin? Truly believing in the resurrection of Jesus must truly change how we live. And then he adds this. Don't miss it. And if it doesn't, if our lives remain untouched, if unrepentant sin remains our most close and and trusted companion, then maybe you don't know God. Like Maybe you don't know him. Paul says, Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, to know God is not to know him just intellectually, right? Like, okay, there's a God out there. But it is to know him like we know maybe your spouse or your best friend. It's to enjoy him, to walk with him. To, to pray with him, to delight in him, to converse with him, to cry out to him. To know God is to know him. Do you see that, Christ City? Like, like, like you know the person you love the most in your life. And so while, while baptism makes no sense without the resurrection, it is a beautiful sign not only of someone's new resurrection life, but of someone's new relationship with the Lord, walking with the Lord. Our religious practices, like like taking communion, now have eternal meaning in view of the hope to come. And and while suffering and persecution, and even just thinking of other people, well, that makes no sense without the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you should stop caring about other people. But it makes perfect sense in view of the empty tomb. We are freed now to give every drop of ourselves to work hard, knowing that eternally speaking, not only will our labor not be in vain, but our reward can never be lost. It makes perfect sense now. Brother, sister, Christian, Christ City, Paul saying, wake up, wake up. And here's how I want us to end. I want to give us just a minute. I want to ask you a question. I want to give us a minute just to consider it. What would it look like for you, specifically you today, to begin living as if Jesus was actually alive? What would that look like for you today? I'm going to give us some ideas, and then we're going to just wait. Would it look like you being bolder, more courageous in your evangelism? Stepping out at work with your neighbors? Would it look like you being a bit better at enduring suffering, knowing that not only is it doing something good in you right now, but that our story doesn't end in pain? Would you finally seek help for that secret sin? Would you bring into the light the thing that you've long kept in the dark? 
Would you turn in repentance today and face the reality of God's love for you in Christ? Would you say yes to the vocational call God has on your life? Would you be lavishly generous? Would you find yourself hanging out with people not just who you like, but people who actually cost you something? People who are hard to be around. How would your life look different if you began living as if Jesus was actually alive? Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.